This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Russell Moore. This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. In Losing Our Religion, I talk about how angered I was on January 6, 2021, to see amidst the crowd of insurrectionists calling for the hanging of Vice President Pence attacking the United States Capitol, a sign that said, Jesus saves. And the reason this was so maddening to me is because it not only was an assault upon our democracy, it also was a misrepresentation, a blasphemous misrepresentation, in my view, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the sort of thing we're going to be talking about today, because there's a new book that I think is really important for all of us to read and to think through, and it's called The Godless Crusade, Religion, Populism, and Right-Wing Identity Politics in the West by Dr. Tobias Kramer, who is a junior research fellow at Pembroke College, associate member of the Department of Politics and International Relations at University of Oxford. And he's been writing for a while now on issues of religion, secularization, and the rise of this sort of populist identity politics. Dr. Kramer, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much, Russell. When you think about these issues, and you mentioned this in your book, you seem to have this this rise in 
the, the kind of movement that I think a lot of people thought was gone from the, let's say, the 1930s, that seems to be happening in all different kinds of places at once. Why is that happening now? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, I think that's that's in some ways the big question. We really have seen it over the last 10 years or so really come to the front, this rise of the what I call the right-wing populist or national populist movements. And we see that, as you say, most countries very much focus on their own country and their own politics and think like, oh, this is a very American issue with Donald Trump. Or in Germany, we think, oh, this is something to do with our history and the alternative for Deutschland. And in the United Kingdom, people think, oh, this is all about Britain's relationship with the EU and Brexit. But as you say, it's actually something we can see throughout almost all Western societies so that we have the rise of these far-right identitarian movements that in many ways are no longer fringe movements, but they are forming governments are going into coalitions and sometimes even running governments. And I've been really trying to understand where this is coming from, why this is happening in so many countries that we are seeing a new social cleavage, a new divide within our societies around the question of identity, the question of who are we, who is the other, who may belong and who may not. And then actually in many ways, this is related to the erosion of traditional sources of group identity through processes like individualization, erosion of class identity, like regional identity, but importantly also secularization. And that as a result, in many societies, people are, are, are wondering without these traditional identities, who are we, who am I, who are we as a group, and who is the other? And that we are basically seeing two possible answers to that, with on the one hand, a globalist, cosmopolitan group that is really focusing on primary group identities, primary for minorities, and otherwise focusing more on individualist sources of identity, a very meritocratic, but also focus on, on really the individual rather than, than group identity. And then on the other hand, however, also grew an answer that is focusing much more on group identity, also for the majority in some ways, and that looks at collective identity markers like history, culture, or ethnicity. And in a way, what right-wing populists are doing is that they try to pick up on that side, on the communitarian side of the divide, and provide an answer. I think it's a slightly problematic answer if we get into that, but an answer to that yearning of group identity and collective source of identity. Okay, well, there's a lot there I want to I want to delve <laughs> into, but before we do, I think there's a lot of people who would say the central reason why these things take hold is because of economic anxiety. People are in a globalized world where they don't feel economically secured, and so you have working class people who are uniting in this sort of populist movement. But you argue that's not really the case. Yeah. No, I mean, like, it's actually really interesting. So if you look at it historically, our societies were really dominated by two main social divides and social cleavages. And one of them is indeed the economic cleavage, if you think about it in <laughs> Marxist terms, is the class struggle between workers on the one hand and capitalists on the other. And then the other one was traditionally the religious culture wars. But what we actually see is that the economic cleavage, the economic divide is becoming less important in people's views. So if you look at 
why people are saying, and why especially voters of right-wing populist parties, why they are voting for these parties. They barely mention the economy. They usually talk about identitarian issues like immigration, national culture, national identity. And it's actually quite interesting to see that, for instance, in the US, there were a couple of papers showing that the people who are actually most economically deprived don't necessarily vote for Trump. On average, I actually think his voters were slightly more economically prosperous than that of Hillary Clinton, at least in 2016. And we see similar things in, in Europe that actually those who are really at the bottom economically tend to vote left-wing parties again. And this is where it is interesting. The people who do vote for these parties are often what used to be white working class in many ways, but it's less about really economic hardship, although obviously that does also play a role, but it's almost a matter of also group identity. So the idea of like, we are proud white working class and, and kind of that identity is, is threatened, but it's also a matter of the question of respect and anti-elitism, the idea that there is this divide between a cosmopolitan college educated elite and a less educated part of the of the population, even though they might not actually economically struggle that much, but it's almost a sense of of losing both socioeconomic status and this collective source of identity. I've, I've been really influenced by a conversation that you and I had several years ago about the way that a lot of these movements, say in France, will appropriate the imagery of Joan of Arc. And we have seen religious symbols, specifically Christian symbols. Let me take India off the table for a moment. But Christian uh, symbols being used in a lot of these uh, movements. Why is that the case? Yeah. No. So it's it's really interesting that that you mentioned that. And in some ways, this is how I how I got into researching that as well. Because on the one hand, you have the rise of these populist movements that are becoming more powerful in the countries, and you have actually resurgence of references to religion in societies that only a few years ago, if you had asked a sociologist, they would have all told you that they are secularized, or at least on the path towards secularization. Now, what is interesting is that you have the rise of these references to, to religion, but actually, when you look a bit more closer, it actually turns out that right-wing populists are using Christian references primarily as a cultural identity marker as a marker of the of the nation and it's really interesting so they're using it in the context of their identity politics but at the same time they often remain distanced from religious values beliefs and institutions and it's very interesting that you also mentioned the jesus saves flags that uh, you saw during the capital riots because if you look a little bit more closely, right next to it, you have neo-pagan shaman in Viking veneer, mm -hmm. you had confederate flags, etc. So it actually shows you to some extent that in right-wing populist thinking, using Christian references is less about a living faith, is less about even organized religion. It's much more a marker of white identity, a marker of this this history and of this tribe. And in some ways, it's then interchangeable with Viking veneer or with the Confederate flag because it is a marker of whiteness or it's a marker of what they would call Western civilization. But it's not really about faith. And it's actually really interesting. In my own research, I've interviewed close to 120 people in this book 
And you were one of my victims a couple of years ago when I, when I interviewed you for that. But I interviewed mainstream party politicians, faith leaders, and many right-wing populist leaders. And it was really, for me, quite surprising and staggering that they would actually say that very openly themselves, especially in Europe. So one thing I would always ask is, what does Christian identity actually mean to you? And it was striking that when I asked that question to mainstream party politicians, whether they be Republican, like center or, or, or Democrats or in Europe, social democratic or conservative or faith, yes, they would all start talking about theology. They would start talking about the second coming of Christ, the Trinity, the resurrection, etc. But when I asked the same question, what does Christian identity mean to you, to right-wing populist leaders, almost all of them would start talking about, about history, about national culture, about national identity, about how that relates to being German or being French. And almost all of them would also start referencing Islam in the definition of Christianity. So they would say, we are Christian because we have a church in the village and not a mosque. I might not go to that mm. church, but it matters. Mm -hmm. We are Christian because we have Christmas off and not, and not Ramadan. I might not go to church on Christmas, but it matters. In many ways, we are Christian to the extent that we aren't Muslim, or we are Christian to the extent that this is part of our national heritage rather than faith and belief system. There's a political scientist in the United States, Daniel Williams, who writes that that the fastest growing religious group in the Bible Belt in the United States are de-churched Protestants. Mm -hmm. And he argues that what happens is that you end up with people with all of the same kind of dogmatism that they would have had with their Christian theology, but without the community. And who are very suspicious of moral norms when it comes to their own sexual behavior or some, some aspects of drug use and the, those kinds of things, but are very dogmatic in terms of Christian identity online. That's not very surprising to you, is it? No, not necessarily, because we see very similar developments in Europe where we can see that at the same time as things like church attendance and even personal belief on rapid, rapid decline, we actually see contrary development that the less Christian Europe is becoming in terms of religiosity and, and self-expressed faith. At the same time, the Christian identity of the country is becoming more important. So what we're actually seeing here is not necessarily a resurgence of religiosity or, or some religious revivalism or like some handmaiden's tale in, in, in Europe or the US, but what we're actually seeing is a culturalization perhaps even a secularization of the concept of religion itself. Religion here, and Christianity in particular here, being less about belief than belonging. It's Christianity really as, the, as an identifier of the nation rather than about individual belief and practice. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. 
these stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith. Because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. So I'm not comparing, these movements are not one-to-one, so I'm not doing that right now. But I just finished this really fascinating book about the German Christian movement during the 1930s and 1940s in Germany. And one of the interesting things to me is the way that at the beginning, there was a lot of emphasis on Martin Luther, Mighty Fortresses Are God, sorts of hymns, a Christian identity at the grassroots level. And yet you had at the grass tops level quite an influence of a kind of neo-paganism, but that as time went on, you had more of a rejection of we need to reject the Old Testament because the Old Testament is Jewish. And then ultimately, we need to be suspicious of people who are looking to the authority of the Bible rather than to the authority of the Volk and history. So there's this paganizing that goes along, even among a lot of people at the grassroots level. Do you expect a similar trajectory to happen in some of these movements as well? I mean, I think it's a tough question, but like an important analogy. And I have some personal stake in that as well, because in my own family history, as you know, I'm German. My great-grandfather was actually in the Confessing Church mm. and preached together with Karl Barth. And so I did not ways, know that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's like he's, he's called Hermann Barth, but they're not, they're not related. But he was involved in the drafting of the Barman Declaration. Ah. That's actually why I've become an Anglophile and an Americanophile, because he was in the resistance. And the only reason I'm here today is because the American soldiers and the British soldiers arrived in his village before the SS could find him because he was sentenced to death in the last days of the war. And they found him before. So he fled to the woods and the, the Americans and the British found him before the, before the Nazis found them in the SS. Fascinating. That's, that's fascinating. <laughs> But but to answer your question, I have thought a lot about these these comparisons, and I do mm -hmm. think that we see similarity to the extent that the Nazis were neo-pagan and like quite mm -hmm. openly so. And you had Hitler, for instance, or like uh, some of Hitler's top-level people saying, "Okay, we have to solve the Jewish question first. We have to find a final solution for the Jewish question." But that's only the the prelude to solve the Christian question of saying that Christianity and that you have very Nietzschean thinking of Christianity being a Jewish sect from the Near East that is a slave religion and that, that does not fit into Germany. You need to free Germany and like the, the Aryan race from this Jewish sect and this the, the, the theology of what they call the Rabbi, Rabbi Paul. Mm -hmm. But it is really interesting that then they would initially try to create this coalition, especially with German Protestantism, of saying, you are an expression of our heritage. This is the faith of our fathers and the church is important and the institution is important. As long as you can just rid it of these Jewish influences and like the Old Testament. And there were a lot of people who initially were quite tempted by that because it's it comes with political power. It lets you also think of yourself in these Darwinian terms as, as, as the master race. 
And in some ways it's easier, it's much harder to resist. And in some ways it was perhaps not necessarily easier to resist, but it was more natural to resist for the Catholic church because they couldn't quite do that because they were a global church. Whereas if you are a national church, a German church, the German part that becomes important, the ethnicity part, the cultural, the historical part becomes important, the connection to the nation. In some ways, I see parallels with what is happening today to the extent that the populist right will similarly say what we like about Christianity is that it's the faith of our fathers. It's culture, it's Judeo-Christian culture. It has shaped how Western society is. And in some ways, what is also similar, and that was actually quite striking to me, was that underneath the identitarian references to religion that I mentioned to you just two minutes ago, I actually often found similarly hostile attitudes towards religion within the far right. So I had one leader of the Alternative for Deutschland actually telling me that in their party, the consensus is that when they say Christian or Occident, they mean it in historical and cultural terms, not in theological terms. And that actually many would internally be very hostile to Christianity and wanted to destroy Christian influences in the party because for them, Christianity was in a very similar vein, a religion from the Near East that did not fit into Germany. Similarly, in France, Jean-Marie Le Pen told me that there's a very strong secularist and neo-pagan current that is more powerful than the Catholic current. And actually, interestingly, even the United States, I heard a few members of the Trump administration telling me that some elements, mainly around people like Steve Bannon and Steve Miller, that were from the more secular populist right, actually tried to get rid of evangelical influences. So that, again, has some similarity to what is what has been happening in the 1930s. That being said, I'm always very, very careful of not comparing the populist right to national socialism, because I do think there is quite an important difference. National socialism and fascism was all about really destroying openly democracy and really about murdering millions and millions of people. And that was their agenda very clearly from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think with the populist right, it's important to recognize that at least in their own thinking, they're actually democratic to the extent that they will say they're defending the view of the majority I mean, they have an identitarian, problematic idea of democracy, but they think they're defending the pure people against the corrupted elite, and they don't necessarily have an agenda of, of genocide. So I do always maintain mm -hmm. that difference. But in their attitude towards religion, I do actually think there are strong similarities. And, and with the idea often, I see this showing up increasingly in the United States, the idea of the, the ethics of Jesus, particularly Sermon on the Mount, as being weakness. And even in some cases, the emphasis on the cross as being something other than a fighting kind of religion that's somehow not masculine. Yeah. Have you seen that in other places as well? Yeah, no, I think absolutely. And to me, it was then very interesting to have the populist right talking about Christianity at the same time I would talk and make basically social Darwinist terms about needing to be strong, needing to fight. It was much more fear-based than hope-based. It was much more fight-based than sacrifice-based. And that is where I initially started thinking that doesn't resonate with my experience from Christian communities, both in Europe and the US. And this is how I got into it. And you can then actually see, as I said, that for them, very often, and I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of very serious Christians also in these movements, 
but the rhetoric, the political rhetoric of the populist right when they talk about religion is really about identity. It's about whiteness. It's about defending the national identity against another. It's exclusivist. And in many ways, it's Christian to the extent that they are against somebody outside. And I think that is really important to, to recognize that identitarian reference of Christianity or even rather Christianism rather than Christianity as a faith. There are some secular progressives who would say, well, uh, of course we have a, a rise in these right-wing populist and authoritarian movements because that's where religion inevitably leads. And yet you talk about in the book, at least in many places, let's take the United States off the table for the moment, that the Christian church-going populations actually were the least likely to mm -hmm. go into some of these movements. Yeah. No, so that is exactly the case, and it is still the case in most European countries that if you if you looked at voting behavior, it actually the irony was that the people who, who would run around and carry crosses in, in Germany's national colors, if you actually surveyed them, it turned out that a vast majority, close to 80% of them would actually self-identify as atheist or irreligious, and only a small minority is actually Christian. And that is something that we can see throughout most of Europe, that actually some scholars even speak of a religious immunity or religious vaccination effect, where the more Christian or the more, the more one practices their faith, the more involved people were in churches, the less likely they were to vote for right-wing populist parties. And in Germany, it's even so far that the alternative for Deutschland, the AfD, the right-wing populist party, actually does on average about twice as well amongst irreligious voters, amongst the nuns, than they do amongst Protestants and Catholics. And we see similar trends historically in, in France or Italy, where if like, being Catholic was actually a more powerful statistical predictor for not voting far-right parties than sometimes even education. And it's then obviously the, the really interesting thing is to see this variation with the US, because in the US mm -hmm. you have white evangelicals being so strongly supportive of Donald Trump in their electoral behavior in 2016, even more so in 2020. But what was actually interesting was that if you looked a bit more closely, especially in the primaries in 2015-16, that in the very beginning, you could actually see somewhat of a religious vaccination effect there too, because initially the most determined supporters of Donald Trump were those Republican voters who never go to church, whereas he significantly underperformed in comparison among the most frequent churchgoers. Now, of course, that has changed since, but it's interesting that his initial most fervent supporters were indeed not the Christian right. So he's not necessarily a figure of the Christian right. That development has come in later. Why did that change? Well, I think there's a host of reasons and I'm happy to get, go into them. I think one big difference in the United States is affiliation in some ways initially. So I do think that once Trump was the Republican candidate in their very first moment, I think a lot of faith voters said, well, he's the Republican candidate. And you can actually see some data showing that initially white evangelicals or Christians more broadly were among Republican voters, those who cited party affiliation as the most important reason for their voting for Trump the most. 
compared to secular Americans who voted for Trump who were really saying, oh, I'm, I'm in favor of Trump. It's less about him being Republican. But I think what happened also afterwards, and that might just have been the first step, because I think what happened afterwards was really, to some extent, a coalition between the populist secular right, this identitarian right, and the Christian right in the United States. And I think the reason for that and why that happened in the US, but not in Europe, is in many ways structural, both politically and religiously. Politically, I think one very important factor is, as I said, the, the availability of a Christian alternative. In Europe, for instance, you often have, like in Germany, you have the Christian Democratic Party, which is a middle-of-the-road conservative party that has Christianity in its name. And you will mm -hmm. have most faith leaders are simply already attached to that party. So it's not actually that Christians are necessarily less racist than their secular neighbors. But what a big difference in Europe is, is the Christian voters were simply unavailable for the populist right because they were attached to a different party. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. How much of a role do you think social media plays in the kind of identity cleavage that you talk about? Is it coincidental that we have seen this surge at the same time that we have, say, the ubiquity of smartphones and social media platforms, or are they related to each other? I think they're related to each other. I think in many ways, I wouldn't necessarily say social media is a cause, but social media is definitely a very important amplifier. Because what social media does to a large extent is you can choose your own authorities, you can choose your own bubble, you can create your own community, and as a result, while, I don't know, maybe in your church group or in your old union, you are kind of stuck with a certain group of people and they might disagree mm. with you and, and you are stuck with them. If you are in a physical community in a way, you might get the sense that this is a, a fringe opinion and you better do not voice it. There's a social taboo around it. Whereas on social media, you can just find this bubble of people who reaffirms the views you already hold. And you will find people who will say, no, no, it's actually, you are right in what you think. You are exactly right in, in your attitudes and actually the way you feel, and maybe your, your most basic instincts are okay. And I think that amplifies 
these, these views. And as a result, the role of institutions in socializing us becomes less important. And you can just reaffirm your own views through social media and creating that bubble. Why, why are we seeing this almost universal mistrust of elites that when you actually dig down underneath it, often you have a mistrust of expertise, not just of, of elites, but of almost any kind of expertise. Where is that coming from? I mean, I think it's, a, it's in some ways the key question. I think it's a really hard one. I think to some extent, obviously, elites themselves play a role. I do think that in some ways elites have probably done not the best job in communicating a lot of the things they've been doing. And in some ways, it's a positive thing because maybe some hypocrisies, maybe some abuse has actually just become public now in the time of social media. And that is a positive thing. If you think about the abuse scandals in the Catholic Church, but also in other churches across the world, maybe 50 years ago, it was actually exactly the same. But now we talk about it because it's possible through social media that these things are exposed and you lose as a result some faith in elites. But I think a big part is also what I mentioned earlier, the erosion of traditional group identities that you have and with that institution. So if you think about the globalization, rapid ethnic change, secularization, that all means that the identity of what you think you are has eroded, but with the identity of what you think you are, also come authorities. If you were perhaps before thinking of yourself as a Lutheran, as a result, a Lutheran bishop would have some authority. If it becomes more secular and your identity as a Lutheran becomes weaker, you will not care that much what a, what a Lutheran bishop will tell you. Similarly, if you had been working class historically in, in, in a European country, you would have been in a union and you would have been in a social democratic party. So if a union leader then says, I don't know, voting for the far right is bad, or, or if the social democratic leader would tell you this or that, you would actually feel like, not necessarily before you, because you agree with them on a matter of content, but because it's part of who you are is that you are in that group and then then you agree with them. And I think as that has eroded, you had this distrust in, elite more, in elites more broadly. And it's actually very interesting that we can see that the mechanism of tribalism is still there. The difference is that the key identifier has moved away from religious beliefs. For instance, it doesn't really matter that much anymore if you ask people of whom they they're okay with their children marrying. It's people are actually quite okay if they're Protestant that their son or daughter might marry a Catholic or or even a Jew or Muslim. That's less problematic now than the political bit of saying, mm. I, I don't want my child to marry a Democrat if I'm a Republican or to marry a Republican if I'm a Democrat. So what we are seeing in a way is the replacement of traditional forms of group identity, such as religion, class or, or geography, by political sources of identity. And that's a bit the essence of identity politics. The problem is, though, in some ways, that if politics becomes your core identity, you can't compromise on it. And that is why mm -hmm. it's really tough. Then you see polarization because if it's you are you are Democrat or Republican and that is who you are, you're not gonna be very open about compromising on that on that or questioning that. So you then start listening to your elites 
within your own political tribe. But I do think the problem of losing the pre-political is that the political becomes so essential. And I think that's a big reason for the polarization we are seeing. So what would you advise a pastor or a parent when they're looking at all of this sort of move from a religious identity to these ethno-nationalist forms of identity. They're looking at radicalization taking place, especially among young men, at least in, a, in an mm. American context. I don't know about elsewhere, but especially among young men. What should a pastor or a parent do in terms of the next generation to attempt to give a different way? Mm. I think it's a, it's a very tough one because... I do think these are like very broad social trends that in many ways mm -hmm. an individual can't change. But what I would mm -hmm. still say is one thing that I've experienced with many far-right politicians was that if you actually take them seriously as human beings without judging, mm -hmm. and if you let them talk for a while, the first 10, 20 minutes tends to be abuse. But very often afterwards, when you don't judge them, when you mm -hmm. remain open, when you remain polite, they actually start telling you what actually moves them. And I'm, again, in the end, optimistic about human nature. I do think that most people, racist to vote for far-right parties or, or Donald Trump. I think most people aren't misogynists who vote for far-right people or Donald Trump. I think most people aren't authoritarian or anti-democratic who vote for that. But I think a lot of people have this sense that their identity is threatened or that there's no respect for them in our current societies, mm -hmm. that they are not respected for the, the, the labor they have put into everything. It's a bit the Ari Horschel's argument of strangers in, in their own land, of people having skipped the queue. It's a sense of injustice and resentment. And I think in some ways there, there probably is something to that. If you think about many center-left parties who had been traditional, the, the, the parties of the working class and who to some extent have become the parties of a highly educated elite on the one hand and minorities on the other. But I think that the really important bit is to show people that you value them, to show people respect and to realize this is most of the time, it's not bigotry. Most of the time, it's not racism. Most of the time, it's a sense of a crisis of identity, the question of who we are and who's the other. And I do believe that there are sources of positive and inclusive identity of things we have in common. And if you start looking for the things we have in common, it's, it's tough. But I think there still are many things we have in common. And if you emphasize these, I actually think there's still a lot of hope that we will overcome this moment of political polarization. And also just saying it's just politics. Politics is not who you are and what we are. Politics is important, but it is not the most essential thing in the world. And if you are Christian, there is something very nice about thinking that this life on this earth is not the most important one. There's a much more important life afterwards. And I think it's Herbert Butterfield, who was the uh, historian in, and vice chancellor of the University of Cambridge, who said that it was for him a very, very freeing experience to say, hold on to Christ and for the rest be totally uncommitted. It gives you this flexibility of mind and attitude when you know what your identity is in Christ.
The book is The Godless Crusade, Religion, Populism, and Right-Wing Identity Politics in the West. Tobias Kramer, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Russell. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Host, Russell Moore. Producer, Ashley Hales. Associate producers, Abby Perry and Azure Phelps. Director of Operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Audio engineering is provided by Dan Phelps. Our video producer is Abby Egan. And the theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.